Our text today is <clears throat> going to be found in the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. So uh, Isaiah might be kind of hard to find for you. So right about in the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. And then if you go just a little bit further to the right, it's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Son of Solomon, uh, Job, and all those. And, and uh, you get to Isaiah. And so Isaiah chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 18 in just a moment. And actually, uh, when we think of prophets, we don't usually think of them as having songs in the writing, but we're actually picking up in the middle of a song. It's called the Song of the Vineyard, and we get that from uh, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1. And, um, and what it is, it's really, uh, it's really, like a, it's really a parable that's kind of in, in verse form. And this, uh, this parable is about the nation of Israel, and, and basically here's the point. Israel is pictured as a vineyard, and God is the vineyard owner. <clears throat> and this vineyard owner has done everything that he can for the vineyard. He's, he's put a hedge of protection around it. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's fertilized. He's done all this stuff. And so he's, he's given this nation everything that it needed. And so you would expect, rightfully so, that uh, this vineyard would produce uh, some sort of good fruit, some sort of good grapes some fruit of righteousness, you might say. But instead of that, the Bible says that it only produced worthless and wild grapes. And therefore, the vineyard owner determined that he was going to lay it waste. He's going to take away its heads of protection, and he was going to let enemies come in and destroy the vineyard. Now, if this terminology seems kind of familiar, it's because Jesus took this parable, and he applied it to the nation of Israel whenever he was on earth. And you remember he's talking to the Pharisees, and he told this parable about a vineyard owner who, uh, who expected this vineyard to produce good grapes. And, and uh, so he sent a servant to collect the wages. And, and uh, the people who were running the vineyard uh, killed the servant. And so then he sent some more, and they beat some and, and killed others. And finally he said, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And they ended up killing him too. Do you remember that, that parable Jesus told well, anyway, he was, he was borrowing from Isaiah chapter 5 when he told that. Anyway, back to uh, our text today. In, in the prophet of Isaiah's book, Isaiah chapter 5, uh, this, this song or this parable pronounces woes on the nation of Israel. Now, it is directed specifically to the nation of Israel, and America has not replaced Israel, and I'm not saying that it has, but I think as you'll look at this, this applies, has a broader application than just specifically Israel. It's talking about all people who fit these categories. And so it's, as we read this, I want you to mentally see how our country compares to what he's saying. And also I want us, as, as you should any time you read the Bible, you should say, how does this apply to me? You should be saying, do I fit any of these categories that Isaiah is talking about? So if you found Isaiah 5, please stand with me as we pick up reading in verse 18. Uh, the text is also up on the screen. It says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood, or your Bible may say vanity, and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, Let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Thank you. you may be seated. 
Now, to properly understand what Isaiah is saying here, uh, we first need to understand what the word woe means. Now, we use the term woe uh, in a number of ways today in, in our culture. If, uh, if you see something surprising or amazing, you might, uh, you might hear somebody say, Whoa, I didn't see that coming. Or uh, if, you're, if you're riding some sort of a, a horse or something, it's the opposite of giddy up, right? There's giddy up and whoa, you're trying to get him to slow down. That's not the way the word woe is being used here. Woe, as, as we use it, uh, sometimes, you ever use the phrase woe is me? A lot of times we use it kind of tongue-in-cheek. Um, we'll be complaining. We'll be talking about this bad stuff that's happened to us. And then we realize what we've been doing. Then we say, oh, woe is me. And, and we, uh, it's almost like we're poking fun at ourselves. We're using it tongue-in-cheek. That is actually getting closer to what uh, the prophet meant, only they didn't use it tongue-in-cheek. It was a pronouncement of judgment. It was a pronouncement of, of calamity, of, of destruction that was headed towards whoever, whoever it was. And, and so the way it's used here is an, it's an exclamation of judgment on the enemies of God. As the American Tract Society Bible Dictionary defined it, it is an inspired denunciation and foreshadowing of God's wrath upon sinners. In other words, this is bad news that's coming. And so, so who are these people that God specifically marks out as being those who are headed for destruction? Look again at verses 18 and 19. He says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, Let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. <clears throat> now the image that he starts out with has, given, has gotten all kinds of interpretations. People look at that and they say, uh, that's kind of confusing. The, the image, I think, overall seems to be uh, a, a picture of people who are plunging deeper and deeper into sin. Maybe it starts out as, as a little thread, but by the end it's a cart rope. Uh, and, and, you know, sin tends to compound one on top of the other. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe, I'm sure you haven't lied, but you've probably known somebody that has. And you tell a lie, but then you have to remember that lie. Then you have to tell another lie to cover up the lie that you just told. Not, again, not you guys, but somebody that you know. And then you have to remember two or three more lies to cover up the lie that she told to cover up the other lie. And then you have to remember these other lies, to co and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like adding strands to a rope. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I think that's part of the idea here. And in, in fact, one of, the, uh, one of the ancient translations of this uh, said it this way. Let me, let me find it. It said, Woe to those who begin to sin by little and little, drawing sin by cords of vanity, these sins grow and increase until they are strong and are like a cart rope. That's one of the ancient translations of these, of these verses. But I think it goes beyond that because I want you to notice that word drag. The word drag. Now, when you think of an animal that's pulling a, a heavy load and they're dragging it along, what are they doing? They're straining, right? They're, they're putting forth some effort. And I think there's... I, I think that's... I think that's a, a clue here because these people were not content to fall into sin. These are people who are putting forth some effort in getting into sin. It, it's almost like they, they, they were trying to find a way to make God upset. They didn't flee from sin. They looked for a way to get into sin. They were dragging sin to themselves as if with a cart rope. And when God in his grace and mercy didn't immediately drop judgment on them, it, it was, he was giving them an opportunity to repent. What did, what did it do? It just emboldened them. They said, well, I'm, I've, I've pulled this sin. Nothing's happening to me. That must mean God can't do anything about it. 
or that must mean God won't do anything about it. And so it only emboldened them, and then look at their words that they say in verse, uh, verse 19. They, they begin to mock God. If we're really going to experience God's displeasure, well, let's see it. Come on, God, you're, you're, you're talking a good game. Let's see you do it. Let's see your, your, your counsel. You say that we're going to go into captivity? Let's see it. Either you can't do it or you won't do it. And so they begin to get very brazen towards God. There's, there's a tone of mocking in their words. Arrogance, scorn. And as I read this, I can't help but think of our own country. Doesn't this sound, uh, it sounds like America to me. And, and get, don't, don't get me wrong, I love our country, but, but we are in a time of moral degradation that just gets worse and worse. <coughs> and there are people, some of them who claim to be Christians, who think that they can just sin with impunity, God can't do anything about it, or they won't do anything about it. And those things that were once scandalous are now commonplace. Have you noticed that? And it just gets progressively worse. We were talking about this on Wednesday. Some of the things that happened in the 90s that everybody made a big fuss about, you can't turn on the TV and watch a, a TV show where something like that's not happening. I mean, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And there are people today who tempt God and mock Him, and they say God can't do anything about it. He won't do anything about it. He's not done anything so far. Therefore, we can just keep on going. So the first group that's, that's headed for judgment and destruction are people who brazenly sin and tempt God. The next group who is specifically mentioned is in verse 20. It's really uh, a natural outworking of, that, of the previous idea, and that is people who substitute evil for good and good for evil. Realize these are not people who don't know any better. These are not people who... You know, maybe they, they grew up in a certain context and they think, well, this is okay because that's the way we've always done it before. That's, that's what my parents did. These are people who take what's good, they know what's good, they know what's right, and they know what's wrong, and they switch them. Now, why would people do that? Well, very simply, they want to justify themselves. Because just think, if you're involved in something and you recognize that it's sinful and you acknowledge that it's sinful, it's wrong, you shouldn't be doing it, you are compelled, at least by common sense, to change, right? To stop what you're doing and fix it. However, if I can redefine what right and wrong are so that the things that I'm doing that were once wrong, I now call right. Well, and in fact, people today do that, and, and they not only say it's okay, they may even think that it's commendable. They, they want to pat on the back for it. They try to convince themselves that what was once sin is no longer sin, and it's okay nowadays. But listen, if it was wrong, it still is wrong. I really like the way one author put it. He said, moral standards were destroyed by new definitions of sin. And I love this, this little phrase. People using God's vocabulary, but not his dictionary. And I love that. People using God's vocabulary, but not his dictionary. They used all the right terms. They just flipped it. And, and, and again, we see this all around us uh, today, because what was once tab taboo? Now it's everywhere. What was once whispered about because of the shame of it, uh, it it's, they, they have a parade over it. I mean, it is, it, it's, it's a bad, bad situation we find ourselves in. And, and listen, just because something is legally right, doesn't make it morally right. And if something is legally right but morally wrong, it's wrong. Woe to them who substitute evil for good. 
So then we have uh, another group of people, actually the same group, if you look at verse 21, who are wise in their own eyes. They have a, a puffed up view of their own intelligence. Now this group of people, uh, have you ever been around somebody like that? They didn't need an encyclopedia because they knew it all already. I, I've, I've worked with people, I've, I've been around those folks, and anything you talk about, they know more than you. You know what I'm talking about? And it, they don't, even if they don't know anything about it, they still know more than you. They still put on a show. Now, do some of these people have bright minds? Of course they do. Some of them do. Some of them don't. They think they do. But the issue is not their intelligence. The issue is what Paul talked about in Romans 1. These are people who, who profess to be wise and yet suppress the truth. Now, as we've worked our way through this, this may kind of stand out to you. It may seem like this is kind of a weird thing that... That people who are proud and are puffed up, that they're in the same category as people who say what was once right is now wrong and what was once wrong is now right. How is it so bad that it deserves judgment? Well, one thing that's true of every person that's wise in their own eyes is they have an unteachable spirit. If you are, if you are one of those people that are proud... You don't, you don't listen to anybody else because you think you already know it all. And therefore, as someone well said, these people prefer their own reasonings to divine revelations, their own devices to the counsels and commands of God. So here are people who, uh, who think they're so smart, so enlightened, they say, well, you know, the Bible says this, but that's so outdated. That's so, uh, that's so antiquated. Uh, you know, this is the 21st century. Uh, these people, when they heard a word of warning from the, from the prophet... They'd laugh. People today, when they hear a word of warning from the pulpit, many of them scoff. If they, if they read the Bible, they say, well, it says that, but they'll write it off and they'll come up with some, some way to justify their behavior. Well, that's, you know, that's so old. This is the 21st century. You know, that may have been fine back then, but this is today. Well, I know that's what Scripture says, but you just don't understand my situation. All these different things that people say are, are simply reasonings of people who want to reject the truth of God so they can substitute their own ideas and justify themselves. That's all it is. So the people that are, are headed for judgment and destruction, people who, who brazenly sin and mock God, people who substitute right and wrong and switch those things around, uh, people who have a, a puffed-up view of their own intelligence, and the last one that he says is in... Uh, is in verse 22 and 23. Those who take pride in their drink and act with injustice. Take pride in their drinking and act with injustice. And he talks, he talks first about those who are drunks. Now that is not a politically correct word. The politically correct word today is, is alcoholic. I once worked with a guy that he said very proudly, I'm not an alcoholic. Alcoholics are people who are trying to quit. I'm a drunk. And he, he was very proud of that. And I've seen it many times in the past, and you probably have too, that there are a great many people that drink that are proud of how much they can handle. I mean, they, they boast about how much they can drink before becoming drunk. They're heroes in drinking. I read that Darius, the king of Persia, had inscribed upon his tomb, I was a great hunter. I could also drink much wine and bear it bravely. That's the type of attitude. They're, they're heroes in the drink. But he also mentions those who, are, who act with injustice, who take bribes and take away the rights of those who are in the right. 
Now, surely this, this has in mind judges and people in places of power, people who, uh, who don't, act, uh, don't act with justice. And wouldn't it be nice if we had a godly court system, judges who would make godly decisions? But I want you to look at these two verses again very closely because there's actually a comma between verses 22 and 23. These are not two groups. Look at what it says. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in, drink, in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. In other words, what he's saying is these are the one and the same. Now, this would apply to both groups of people individually, but Isaiah lumps them together. Now, I think part of what he's saying is the private lives of those who are in power affects their ability to lead publicly. The life that somebody leads privately affects their ability to lead publicly. There's an old preacher and commentator from back in the late 1800s. He said, When shall we learn and practice the lesson that Isaiah was reading his countrymen? That it is fatal to a nation when the private character of public men is regarded as of no account in public... Or, sorry, of... Let me do that again. That it is fatal to a nation when the private character of public men is regarded as of no account in political and civic life. In other words, drunkenness, including that of public officials, is seen as a small thing today, but God says it's a big thing. The private lives of those who are in, in power, those who are judges and, and political leaders, the private lives is a big thing. Isaiah said, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking liquor and act with injustice. As I was reading, uh, studying, I, I came across uh, John Trapp. He, he was a guy who lived in the 1600s. And he, um, he referenced a, uh, a situation that happened uh, some years before that. He said, when one was commended to King Alphonsus for a great drinker and able to bear it, he answered, that was a good praise in a sponge, but not in a prince. And I was, I was kind of cracked up at that. You know, people, people get real proud. Well, I can, I can drink this or that, and it doesn't bother me. Well, that's, that's good if you're a sponge, not so much if, if you're a person, especially a leader. Uh, and I want to close with this statement that I read. In the universal catastrophe, one thing stands alone up, upright and is lifted higher because all else has sunk so far. The righteous judgment of the forgotten God. The grim picture is as true for individuals in their deaths as for a nation and its decay. And folks, we live in a time when our nation has largely forgotten God. Now, there are pockets of people who, who have not forgotten God, of course. But our nation as a whole has turned its back on God. We're in a state of moral decay. Evidence of this is, is, is seen on a daily basis. What was once tolerated is now celebrated. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Stuff that, that, that was once seen as a perversion is now being protected. What was once considered murder is now simply a choice. What was once good is now evil. And what was once evil is now good. We are a nation who I believe the prophet Isaiah could rightly pronounce these woes upon. And what's true of the nation as a whole is also true of many of those who are in the nation. And we need to consider where our nation is headed. We need to consider where we are headed personally. You say, well, what can we do? Because I'm with you. I agree we're in bad shape. But what can little old me do? Out here in Podunk, Missouri, what can I do?
I want to suggest three things. The first is pray. Pray for America. Pray for its leaders. Pray for revival. Because this nation ain't going to turn around if the people of God don't turn around first. Peter said one time, it's, it's time for the judgment of God to start at the house of God. Pray for revival. Pray that it starts with you. Second thing is be bold. Stand up for what's right. Now, I'm not saying you have to, again, you don't have to start out and do an altar call. You go to work, say, Steve, Tim, Mary, whoever it is you work with, what she said was wrong. Now, let's pray and have a time of invitation. That's not what you have to do. But you can be bold. You're sitting around the lunch table, and somebody is saying, no, no telling what, you stand up and say what's right. Now, you don't have to be a jerk about things, but be bold. You don't have to be spineless. Stand up for what's right in the community. Wherever it is that you are, be bold. Don't back down. And then maybe, number three, if you need to, repent. Maybe you see yourself in some of these woes. Maybe there's something else you need to repent of. God has maybe he's been working on your heart the whole week, this month, this year, and he's been saying, you need to get this fixed. Maybe you need to get something right with God. Maybe you've never been right with God. Today would be a great day to get that way. Repent of your sin. Confess it to God. Ask him to save you, to forgive you. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Somebody would say, well, you don't know what I've done. No, but God does. Jesus knew, and he still went to the cross for you. That's how much he loved you. Today, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody looking around. I just want you to, to honestly examine your, your heart before God. Could any of these woes be pronounced on you? Woe to the one who brazenly sins and mocks God. You think God, just because God's not done anything yet that he never will? Maybe in your own heart and mind you substitute good and evil, switch them around, redefine things to make yourself comfortable. Are you puffed up, real impressed with yourself, how smart you think you are? You won't listen to anybody. You certainly won't listen to what God says. When he's only God, what would he know? Are you one who is proud of what you, how much you can drink, take away the rights of, uh, of those around you, act with injustice? Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we, we pray for our nation today as, um, Lord, it's, it's, it's depressing, it's sad to look and um, to see how far our nation has come just in the last 10 or 20 years, much less from where we began. And God, we know we, we can't downplay the blight that some of these things are on our culture and our nation. The murder of innocence. The exaltation of perversion. The open sin of all manner. The greed that... that uh, that we see and, and, and celebrate and, and marvel at how how much drive a person has to get ahead. God, we just have so much. And we pray for forgiveness. What's even more uh, depressing, I think, Lord, is whenever we see scripture which says blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and we realize that our nation is not one of those nations but God we thank you and praise you that when all this bad stuff is is true Jesus saves that Jesus died on the cross and you offer forgiveness you offer repentance and Lord I believe that if we as a nation, if we as the Christian body within our country, we as New Hope would really turn and, and call out to you that you start making changes. Changes on the national scale, changes just in our community. And God, we ask that you would do that now. Start, start a revival in our hearts. let's have even another great awakening if you would God if there's somebody here who's never accepted Christ I pray for their salvation I ask that you would convict their hearts we ask it in Jesus name